Why Watch That is a podcast featuring the critic and referee who go head-to-head on a quest to discover the best movies and TV shows Hollywood has to offer. Expect the unexpected from the critic. While nothing gets past the ref. We do all the work. So you don't have to. Welcome Welcome to to Why Watch Watch That. So why watch that TV talk? Well, we have a short and sweet TV review this week. We're, oh. we're looking at TV shows, a couple series premieres, and season finality. finalities. Finalities? <laughs> or as we say in our lingo, a finale. <laughs> this season. Now, if you don't know... You will know in a moment that TV is having a strange, unusual low because everybody's getting out of the way for Game of Thrones. <laughs> Nobody wants to compete with the throne. <laughs> <laughs> so in light of that, uh, we will definitely take our, take our little sweet time with these beautiful shows that we have this week. Yeah. Start with ABC's Bless This Mess. Now, I tried, I started it, but I did not end it, um, this pilot. Do tell us about this new show that reminds me of Money Pit. (laughs) 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 That 80s movie with (laughs) Tom Hanks and Shirley, somebody from Cheers. You know what? Your knowledge of just off-brand 80s movies. <laughs> I love Money Pit. <laughs> okay, Come so on. everybody loves Money Pit. <laughs> you don't love Money Pit. That was like Tom Hanks in his prime. Yeah. I'm sure that the Library of Congress has that designated in the Chubby Long. <laughs> oh, Chubby Long, right, okay. Chubby so. Long was in it. <laughs> it got a 49 on Metacritic. <laughs> Which is not good. Now. <laughs> I'm gonna Bless keep going. Bless no, this mess. Was in it. Bless this mess. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> Who's the ref here? <laughs> I know, but it's just I had to tell it. <laughs> oh, lovely. Okay. Pierce is in it. <laughs> That's the paramedic. Okay, go. <laughs> okay, go. Mike, played by Jack. He's on. I'm sorry. Okay, here we go. Are you sure? Yes, I am. So we got Mike, who's played by Dak Shepard. And we got Rio, who's played by co-creator Lake Bell. And they're oh so excited. You see, they get to quit their jobs. Mike's a music journalist who tells his editor to forget it, or so he says. And Rio's a therapist who talks to her clients like they're her annoying friends. So when she tells them that she has to go, you're not quite sure who's the therapist and who's the client. Now, the reason why Mike and Rio are quitting their jobs and leaving New York City is because Mike just received quite the gift from his great aunt after her passing. She left him her farm in Nebraska. Yeah. So Mike and Rio jump in a U-Haul and drive to that great state to begin life anew as farmers. And along the way, Rio's mom nags them via the phone. But when they arrive at the farm, 
their dream of enjoying the idyllic life hits a bit of a snag. First of all, the farmhouse looks like the kind of place that even Chip and Joanna Gaines would think twice about renovating on HGTV's Fixer Upper. And second of all, there are locals for them to contend with, of course. There's Mike's great aunt's former neighbor, Rudy, played by Egg Bagley Jr., who's the oddest of birds and who now lives in their barn, which doesn't stop him from using their bathroom in unannounced fashion. There are neighbors Kay and Bo, along with their son Jacob, who are interested in purchasing Mike's and Rio's land and can't believe that Mike and Rio are actually planning to farm it. I mean, that's hilarious. And there's Constance, played by Pam Greer, who owns the local store, runs the local theater, and is the sheriff. She also has some sort of weird thing going on with Rudy, which I can't put into words. And so, in this fish-out-of-water comedy series, Mike and Rio will have to learn how to adjust to the slower pace and smaller population of rural Nebraska. And they just might find that their former careers may not stay that way, even as they contend with all the work that goes into getting the farm up and running, if that's what they really want. But the question for us as viewers is this, is that enough to sustain a series? Well, here's what I'll say on that count. The pilot episode has a nice energy to it and things move along pretty well, but the writing's pretty spotty. However, it's a pilot, so that's not a surprise. In addition, Lake Bell, who along with co-writing the pilot, also directed it. Well, she's someone who's already shown that she has chops behind the camera as the writer and director of In a World, which is a film that you should check out if you haven't already done so. So we're in good hands here. Also, as far as the acting goes, the cast gets the job done with what they're given. So the success of Bless This Mess will come down to how many funny situations the writers can come up with and how they develop the characters into more than just cliches and stereotypes over time. Which means that we'll just have to wait and see what happens in the episodes to come before rendering final judgment. Like I felt when I was giggling and you didn't find that funny. (laughs) Moving on to another series premiere, Rami, on Hulu, this you see the commercials everywhere. It's it's kind of an irreverent show for what we see from the commercials, but how does that play out? Yeah. Uh, so Rami, played by co-creator Rami Youssef, is a young Muslim man who's getting older. So his mother's very concerned about his marriage status, or lack thereof. She says to him, "Why don't you find a nice Muslim girl in the mosque to marry?" He says, because mom, it's a mosque. But she's not the only one on his case. His friends also point out to him that there are only two hot Muslim women in the area who aren't already married, or maybe there's only one actually. So he better get moving. Plus his hair's beginning to thin. He says in return that he's dating someone and she's white. And they go, you can't have a wife who skinny dips. And that leads to this. While Rami has never dated a Muslim woman, which is why his non-Muslim colleague and friend Steve calls him a racist, he's now ready for a change. He's now ready to settle down. And this, of course, pleases his parents, but it infuriates his sister, who's sure that their parents are going to start pressuring her as a result. And she has a point. 
Well, actually, she has multiple points, as is illustrated quite effectively in this season's sixth episode. There's an excellent episode that's from the perspective of Rami's mom as well. But before we get to that, one of the main questions from the start is this. Just what's going to happen to Rami as he navigates dating a woman who was chosen by his mother? And just how committed is he to the idea? Is it something that he's doing merely out of guilt? Or will it actually turn into something that even surprises him for better or for worse? And with that, Rami begins its comedic, though not too comedic, take on what it's like to be a young adult who's a practicing Muslim in the United States. Actually, it's closer to a dramedy than to anything else. And it focuses on more than just whom to date and whom to marry. It also focuses on Rami's spiritual journey and his struggle as a millennial Egyptian-American Muslim who lives in New Jersey. Yeah, all of that. And I'm happy to state that from the beginning, it drew me in. It's the kind of show that can be funny without having to be funny to work. And when a joke or moment doesn't land all the way, which isn't common, it actually doesn't matter much. In addition, as with many narratives that are truly good, it uses its unique perspective as far as American television goes to shine a light on a culture that has been underrepresented in a way that actually reveals how the same concerns are consistent throughout all cultures, from parents nagging their grown kids about starting a family, to getting a good job, to what happens when you move outside of the culture in which you were raised and have to deal with certain assumptions. It's just that those concerns are handled differently depending on where you are and with whom. Plus, one of this show's most important twists is that while Rami has to deal with people's prejudices both inside and outside his family and conflicting cultures, he has his own assumptions about his own cultures and about himself to deal with as well. And of course, this show ventures into other topics, many of them appropriately awkward, that serve its characters and provide a glimpse into Rami's and his fellow writers' perspectives, just like any other show would. I mean, just look at how they develop Rami's and Steve's friendship, the particulars of which I won't give away. And look at what happens to Rami when he visits his family in Egypt in the final two episodes of the season. I mean, these are people, people. And it's because of all of that that Rami should make it onto your watch list. It has a look and feel that would fit in with any of HBO's half-hour shows. It's produced by A24, after all. And it has a clear perspective that avoids heavy-handedness. And so, Hulu has found a real winner in Rami, which already must be considered one of this year's very best TV shows. And I can't wait to see season two. Moving on to season finales, The Magicians! is saying ta-ta <laughs> it's on sci-fi but it's already been renewed for season five so there mm. you go yes and quentin and friends have as usual gone through it in the fourth season of the magicians in particular they've had to deal with a malevolent godlike monster that possessed elliot and then tried to remember what it was supposed to do in the universe which of course wasn't good and then after this monster remembered what its task was, Julia, who's some sort of God in her own right, was possessed too. So the important question for the season was this, would it be possible for everyone to stop these two monsters who seem to be all powerful and save their friends sublimated consciousnesses at the same time? 
In addition, new facts emerged about the library, which controls the supply of magical energy, among other things. And those facts weren't good because one of the library's big wigs plotted something that would help himself at the expense of others, and that was connected to the monsters. Also, one of the characters' doppelgangers was found in this show's version of the underworld, which posed problems for the living, especially for the love of his life. And speaking of loves, Margot seemingly found a heart and started having feelings for the most unlikely of guys. Shocker, indeed. Plus, she renounced her crown as King of Fillory, which is a perverse take on Narnia, and which has its own struggles and revelations and will have mysterious changes to deal with in the next season. And of course, much more happened throughout the course of the season, including the emotional transition of one of the main characters from the living to the not living, which was foreshadowed. But I've said enough on that count. And so, how did this season of The Magicians stack up to previous seasons? Well, it wasn't quite as thrilling or as inventive or as surprising as season three, but it was still full of lots of interesting ideas and storylines, and it still did a good job of executing them. I just wish that they'd move the plot along a little more because some of the storylines overstayed their welcome a bit. Plus, the musical episode was an unnecessary distraction. Even still at this point, I believe that The Magicians is a must-see for fantasy fans despite its comparatively weaker first two seasons. Because for the past two seasons, they've managed to throw all kinds of disparate ideas at viewers in a way that was inspired and that made it impossible to know exactly what was going to happen next from moment to moment. And what could be more fun than that? Let's round this out with Star Trek Discovery. It's finale, season two. It's already renewed for season three. Remember, this is on CBS All Access, not CBS On Demand. You will not find it anywhere else other than CBS All Access. So now, do tell us, how have things ended this season? Hmm. Well, after an expensive and expensive-looking freshman season, Star Trek Discovery had a lot to live up to and expand on in its sophomore season. And in that season, the center of the show was still Michael Burnham, but in true Star Trek fashion, there were still plenty of other characters who were either introduced or developed more deeply. We saw the metamorphosis of First Officer Saru, along with the origins and metamorphosis of his species. We saw the heartbreaking dissolution and eventual rebirth of the relationship between science officer Paul Stamets and medical officer Hugh Culber after Hugh was essentially brought back to life in wondrous yet disturbing fashion. We saw Ensign Tilly develop a relationship with a mind-controlling organism, which proved to be pivotal to the plot. And we saw the devastating sacrifice of one of the crew members. And through it all, two major storylines emerged and converged. There was the introduction of Spock, who is Michael's brother, and who was betrayed by her when they were kids. And over the course of the second half of the season, we learned more about both characters as they began to find their way back to each other, ending with a send-off that not only worked for this show's plot, but also for the plots that were established by previous Star Trek movies and series that are actually set after this show's events. In addition, both Burnham and Spock and everyone else had to contend with a malevolent artificial intelligence that seemed like some sort of spawn of Marvel's Ultron. 
In their battle against that entity for the survival of all sentient beings, not only connected Burnham and Spock again, but also brought Burnham face to face with herself and her past. There was a big old revelation in regard to that that drove this season to its conclusion. Plus, complicating all matters was the introduction of a secret Starfleet outfit named Section 31, which housed both familiar and unfamiliar characters who had their own untrustworthy agendas. And all along, there were nods to previous iterations of Star Trek, from classic episodes to classic sounds and looks, thanks largely to the incorporation of the USS Enterprise. Plus, the series finale expertly explained how Discovery could have existed without ever being a part of the Enterprise storylines, making this season a true feat of storytelling. And so overall, I do have to say that the mix of all of this season's elements almost always worked completely and certainly never failed fully. And that's why Star Trek Discovery deserves any praise that it receives. Everyone here is committed to a story well told, and CBS has given them the resources to accomplish that on all levels. This is science fiction at its most satisfying. All right. So there you've heard it. Four shows that you can check out or carry up and check out because <laughs> it won't be around very long. But hey, come back to us next week. We're going to have more to say about television. Thanks for listening. For additional resources, visit whywatchthat.com. Good idea, and we'd love to hear from you. So go ahead and leave comments, feedback, and you can rate us on iTunes. We'll see you next week. See you.